0: 27 minutes it is before 9 p.m. And uh, as I said earlier on, I'd love to hear from you. Give us a ring on 89 110 And uh, we now go into uh, what I must say uh, is, is indeed a vexing conversation. I mean, this, this issue of the national health insurance is not the first time uh, this uh, issue has been placed on the agenda here in South Africa. It's uh, been ongoing, and as I said, when we started, uh, successive State of the Nation addresses have spoken about resources dedicated to pilots uh, for the National Health Insurance. And uh, I must say, I am convinced by uh, the case for the need for a uh, uh, equalization in access uh, to uh, quality clinical care. Uh, because if you think about it, I mean, uh, you've got... Uh, uh, levels of expenditure in the private sector that uh, at times equate to levels of uh, expenditure on public health care and yet only service uh, about, you know, just under a fifth of the uh, population here in the country. And it speaks to the kind of inequality that we have in multiple areas uh, in our society. I'm joined now to talk about uh, this uh, particular issue and, of course, uh, some of the issues relating to our public health care system, how it's funded, uh, clinical outcomes, and, of course, ensuring that uh, we continue to have a healthy uh, a population here yeah, and a healthy citizenry here in South Africa. I'm joined by Russell Rensberg uh, from the Rural Health Advocacy Project and he joins me now uh, in studio. Comrade Russell, good evening to you, man. How are you? Hey, I'm all good. Yeah, uh, always a pleasure, good. man. Always a pleasure. Well, good to see you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Likewise, likewise. Russ, let's maybe start off here. Um, I, I'd be interested to hear from you what you make of. Much of the commentary around, you know, this uh, 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 bill that was released last week. Um, And I I was saying earlier on, I mean, a lot of it is hysteria, really. And a Mm. lot of it is really sort of punting uh, the position of many in the middle classes and some of the big health funders uh, in the private sector. Uh, Even the conversation says, yeah, you know, Discovery took a knock. Uh, Mm -hmm. The share price Mm -hmm. took a knock on the back of this NHI. Mm -hmm. And the big Mm -hmm. question I'm asking is, in the bigger scheme of things, in a population of 55 million people or so, how many people are really served uh, by a discovery in proportion I guess to, to some of the noise that we're making about it uh, very little look I think that for me
1: the, the conversation around the national health insurance is becoming a proxy for other conversations mm. that we need to have you know I think there's big mistrust in government mm. you know and, 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 and rightly so I think the last nine years of, or longer if we focus on yeah. the last nine years we've actually really really have a trust deficit mm. right and at the bottom of that trust deficit we had this feeling of, 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 of a binary conversation yeah Right, And I think all of those conversations influence the debate around something that is as transformative as the NHI, mm. to mm. becoming a protection of interest rather than looking at what is the goal of the legislation. Sure, because yeah. I think if we decouple it from the politics, you know the NHI makes sense. Mm. You, know, mm. I, you know in a lot of ways, you know, we need to change this conversation of health care to being about health. Mm. You know, when we look at health, health is an enabler. you know, you wear spectacles, and I think I use this exa- example <laughs> a lot. <laughs> And I know maybe it's (laughs) something that you want to
0: keep as a secret. No, no. People know I wear glasses. Uh, Yes, you wear glasses. You know know how transformative a pair of glasses is,
1: right? But if you are part of that 70% or 80% of the population that rely on public healthcare services, chances are that unless, depending on who you're born to, Mm. you're only going to get diagnosed probably late in high school on the need for glasses. And right up until that time, you're going to be treated like a stupid kid. Right? And I think making healthcare accessible to all communities, particularly those that are underserved and rural populations, can, can transform their development. Mm. I mean, if you look at the rural women or women in general, and how many women still drop out of school because of teenage unwanted pregnancies. Mm. Right again, it talks to yeah. health as an enabler because we, we, if we can access comprehensive sexual and reproductive health, mm. that changes how I mean, we, we make decisions. Debate,
0: even the debate uh, uh, Russell, around stunting, for instance. Exactly, I mean, a big chunk of that, yes, from a nutritional perspective, sharp. But the the big chunk of it is also about pre natal healthcare, access to prenatal healthcare, which in effect, I mean, if you're born stunted, uh, your life chances of, you know, of of ever getting anywhere. No, no, the 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 evidence is
1: clear, man. Mm. In the first thousand days, if you don't get the right nutrition, even during pregnancy and after birth, Mm. the right kind of nutritional support, you're developmentally delayed. Yeah. Right? And that means that your participation in your own development is delayed. Mm. You know, and and I think when we start changing the, the narrative away from what it costs, to rather what do we get back, mm. right? I think that's the first conversation that we need to have. What is the value of health and what do we attach it to? You know, do we see health as an investment in broader human development mm. and as a realization of broader socioeconomic rights? Or do we start thinking of, oh, let's count the pennies and see where we are? You know, so if we, if we, if we do the numbers, yeah, they're all right. You know, we've, we've got a, some institutional problems. Right, we have a problem with corruption mm. we have a problem with an a adic- uh, 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 misaligned health system or misaligned sure. government right but in that conversation yeah the answer is clear but that's when we, we trap ourselves into a narrative that we are now hoping to get past mm.
0: is that right? a narrative of fiscal expediency uh, uh, when you look at it Russell because I think the point you're making is that ensuring that you have a healthy population is a social investment with all manner of multipliers over a long period of time. Exactly. And if we just have a finance conversation, it's an expedient conversation from financial year to financial year, but really mm. doesn't solve, I guess, our long-term systemic issues. Yeah,
1: because we're not looking at it as an investment, looking at a cost. We mm. do a cost-effective analysis or feasibility study. We look mm. at what we can afford. But nowhere in that conversation is what we want to buy sure right sure. And most sure. of it is about containing the costs and i think that's kind of what i'm responding to is change the narrative mm. and one of the reasons i su- support the health reforms because they may not be institutional in the classic sense of the word but if you look at the kind of things that they do address the the, the challenges with governance and all those other things notwithstanding mm. Mm. you know it centralizes the funding of health sure and anybody that's kind of like um, spoken about health or written about public finance around health. Mm. We know that we've had some challenges with this fiscal federalism that we've been yes, operating yes, yes. In, in the manner that we allocate significant amounts of money to provinces to implement health care, but they have mm. un, they have unfettered control and how they, they distributed their budgets. And and, and and over time, we've essentially under-invested in health. So our capability to run it is problematic. Mm. You know. So what the bill proposes, besides the setting up of the fund, is firstly, let's centralize public funding. Mm. You know, so all the conditional grants, the health component of the equitable share, and let's split the purchaser and the provider components. Mm. Right? Mm. So we're not saying the provinces no longer have a role. We're just saying, let's, let's ring fence that money for health on the central level. Right? And let's begin to start funding districts directly. Mm. We even, it goes even further. It talks about sub-districts. Right? We know that South Africa is a, a vast and varied country. And even within districts, health outcomes are different. Yeah. Right yeah. so when we start funding at that source or at the sub district level we have an opportunity to start responding to the specific needs mm. of the health communities that we're trying to but serve. But don't
0: you think Russell that's where the politics emerge from and I, and I want us maybe to pause there for a second we'll come back to this issue i need to take <sighs> a spot break. But uh, you know if if you think about what the western cape government has been saying they're saying look you guys you you know you're taking away some power from us. You're taking authority over resources away from us. And I think that for me is where some of the political conversation starts. But I'd love to also hear from some of our listeners on this question of the national health insurance. What do you think? Uh, do you uh, share the sentiment that Russell has that uh, indeed in principle uh, it is something that is uh, going to be progressive and make a positive impact uh, to uh, health in South Africa? Or do you hold a different line and a different view? I'd love to hear from you. Give us a ring on zero eight nine double one zero double three double seven zero eight nine double one zero double three double seven 15 minutes it is now before 9pm we're talking the National Health Insurance have with me in studio Russell Rainsburg. he's from the Rural Health Advocacy Project and we were talking before we went to the break about uh, I guess uh, what this means for many of the provincial health departments who have uh, I guess, uh, uh, had authority over some of the resources uh, in the healthcare system now and with a centralised fund uh, which is going to have ring-fence resources. The big question many people are asking themselves, Russell, is uh, whether or not that is uh, the suitable approach and uh, uh, whether, I guess, what centralising it responds to. What what challenge does it, uh, in essence, respond to with the current system?
1: I think the the, the challenge that the response to is firstly uh, the poor resource allocation decisions that we make in our provinces sometimes. Mm, okay. You know, um, to some of you and know, the way that we fund healthcare is through what they call a provincial equitable share. Yes. Right, where resources are divided between the nine provinces based on mostly population-type data and some oh. adjustments for poverty and this, that, the sure, other. Sure. Right, with health, makes up 27% of that share. Right, that's supplemented by conditional grants that come from the national government but are also allocated to provinces on an equitable share basis. Mm. So it's about 240 million. If you take 80% of that, let's make it 200 billion that go to the provinces sure. every year. right? And I think part of the challenge that we've seen over the last nine years, because those grants are unconditional, right? and I think it was a gap in the writers of our constitution, mm. right? because the idea was the closer to the point of delivery, the, the provincial legislatures would be able to prioritize. Yeah. That, what happened though, in, a, in an environment where we had this fiscal federalism, and I think it grew strong in the last nine years, particularly mm. when, when, when provincial um, chairs started becoming premiers, mm. as opposed to the National Deployment sure, <laughs> Committee sure. sending premiers, you know, we started seeing people creating little empires in their provinces, little fiefdoms, little mm. they mm. also started replicating national government, and so forth, and et cetera, and, th- and at the end of the day, the resources that were availed, because provinces raised no taxes right, became a little bit um, constrained. Mm, and then mm. we started making some poor decisions. You know, we started allocating money where we shouldn't. We shifted things from core expenditure to goods and services mm. so that we can create an environment for networks of patronage. We use policy uh, policy statements, innocuous little statements that make sense. Township economies. So f- um, small villages, dorpies, and towns. Mm. And then we created a framework to start contracting in our politically connected individuals. Right? Mm. And, and and over that while what happened in health is that we started crowding out expenditure on core things. Mm. Right. So we started having crises with HR.
0: We started having stockouts. We started having stockouts. Mm. We
1: started having this because there wasn't enough money. Not that there wasn't enough money. You know, it's just but the money was diverted to, diverted. to other yeah. uses, yeah. yeah. In yeah. some provinces it worked well. Mm. You know, like I think they everybody talks about the Western Cape. But the Western Cape is a unique case. I think, Firstly, I think the DA did one good thing there is that they left the administration of health to the administrators of health, mm, mm. right? But there were other issues that they actually didn't really have to deal with. They didn't have to absorb any Bantu stance.
0: Yeah, yeah. Unlike right? the Eastern Cape. Unlike the Eastern had the Cape. The Transcai. the
1: Siscai and the Transcai. KwaZulu-Natal, Gautengad, Harangko. There were so many, mm. right? And I think with that also came a lot of complications around the management of it. A second thing that the DA didn't have to deal with was like really this explosion of HIV and AIDS. Yeah. Not just on the impact on the health systems, but also on the deliverers of health. Mm. You know, in the early mm. days, everybody died. It, was, it, it didn't discriminate sure, whether you were a sure. healthcare worker because it, uh, it went to the core of who we are as a mm. people, how we socialize and so forth and etc. But off that base, we have different setups. right? And I think with the proposals to split the purchasing right, from the provision... The provinces don't lose their job. Mm. You know, so whatever the DA or whatever the Western Cape has built, let's not say the DA, because those systems were there even when the ANC was, was governing there, yeah, yeah, yeah. the mm. Western Cape. But those systems that were built, the way that they've implemented health, and they've all transitioned also now towards a broad uh, NHI framework, mm. will continue. You know, I think the only thing that will will, will change is is the way that they allocate the resources. Mm. Mm. Right? And I think through the centralization of the fund, I think we standardize that. That's the first yeah. instance. Then when we look at this thing more like on a, on, on a what, how does it change for me? Mm. Like I advocate for rural communities. Sure. Right? And part of the challenge is particularly rural, former Bantustan communities like the trans mm. like our home vibes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? Is that, you know, those systems started off as a, de- a deficit already. Mm. Right? And And part of the problem is that 95% of the population in those areas rely on public services. Right? Because the private sector follow the money. Yeah. Right? So, wherever there's medical schemes and this, that, and the other, those that's where the infrastructure, that's the infrastructure yeah, yeah. will be because there's a system to support. Sure. It, right? With the NHI, we they're creating a new framework. So, in the first instance, they call these things contracting units for primary care, which mm. are organized around primary health care. Mm. So, including in those are clinics, CHCs, district hospitals, community outreach teams, mm. and this thing that they call integrated practice. Which is like GPs, pharmacists, um, occupational therapists, physiotherapists, all operating within an integrated practice, providing additional support services mm. to that sub district that they serve. Sure. Right? So I think all of a sudden we were able to access things like a physiotherapist. Mm, right? Mm. Or my, 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 one of my, my kids had a fine motor issue. Yeah. Right? Because we had medical aid at the time, he was able to access the occupational therapists. Mm. Right? So his disability became an ability and now he's flourishing. But. Uh, poorer kids or kids like myself wouldn't have had that wouldn't have had that you know we just just carry on
0: russell you're raising something very interesting i mean you know a few weeks ago i was speaking to uh you know uh, one of the advisors to to one of the ministries in portugal and he was saying to us and i was asking him about this nhI debate Mm. talking about health health services and universal care and he says you know they have a similar system in portugal Mm. but the issue there is that you know you have a specialist who is supposed to be at an academic or a public hospital um, and when you get there they tell you no this person is not there because they've gone to the private sector now they've collected the money mm. uh, because they've been contracted for their services mm. to mm. the public sector mm. but in essence they've actually also following the money so they'll sit there and say yeah I'm supposed to be here I have an office mm-hmm. at the public facility mm-hmm. but in essence are seldom there because they sort of moonlighting for some of their private sector clients who are able and willing to pay
1: Yeah, I think it's a risk you know I think it's particularly with specialists because we have uh, what 2,000 3,000 specialists servicing the whole country Right, there's always going to be a challenge. Mm. Right, where does your interest lie? But I think what you're talking to speaks to a broader problem. Right, when we have this narrative, at the moment we have a narrative. We frame the narrative around the health system in crisis and broken. You know what it does do is it creates this op- this idea that the public sector is beyond saving. Mm. Right, so the politicians are always interested in nice Instagram moments and. To, to look like they, 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 they're doing something. Yeah. And then we're going to run the risk, particularly in the transitional arrangements where the fund will start purchasing services that will start contracting out capacity. Mm. Right? So we'll say, okay, if I know you guys do that, you guys do that, Medi clinic, you run primary health care centers. And if they do that in rural areas, they're just going to cannibalize the current public health workforce anyway. Mm. Right? So what we end up doing is we weaken the public system and then over time we become enamored to these private interests. And I think an important conversation for us as, as as activists and for communities at large is to ensure that we start building a unified, publicly funded health system mm. that contracts incapacity, right? And I think when we do that, we contract incapacity to support the strengthening of the public system, and we don't create environments where the public sector can, but the private sector can potentially mm. profit more than the benefits that they give. Yeah, you know, they also yeah. start cherry picking which services they want course, to deliver. Of course, of course, yeah, yeah. And you know, pick and out the high value ones. The high yeah. value ones where you can get the mm. best bang for your buck. Sure. And I think that's all part of the process that we need to learn. Okay. And talking and we, about learning.
0: Now, Russell, we know there's been a f- few of successive pilots mm. um, on the NHI. Successive president Jacob Zuma used to speak about it quite a bit in his State mm. of the Nation addresses and so did Cyril Ramaphosa. Uh, and I'm quite interested with this bill coming uh, on board last week. Mm whether or not we, we have a distillation of some of the key learnings that we've had. And if we say, for instance, we've had eight pilots, one in Malamlele, one in Kofim one in wherever. Um, and these are the things that we have learned, which will then allow us from a, a sort of a system design perspective to, feature, to filter some of those key insights into how we're designing this new NHI system. What, what have you seen in some of the pilots? Look,
1: in the first instance, um, many of us have <laughs> sort of kind of... They were called pilots in name only. They weren't pilots, right? There was no centralized funding. There was no direct purchasing. There was no contracting in. There was It was really just PHC re-engineering, right, that we tried to masquerade so as So re- p- re- re-engineering
0: of the primary healthcare mm. system, basically.
1: Re-engineering of the primary healthcare system, the ideal clinics, the DCSTs, uh, which is district specialist teams, mm. and so forth, and so There was a whole lot of... Um, fragmented interventions yeah. that we were trying to masquerade as a pilot, right? And I think to look at them as pilots and evaluate their failure as some kind of a failure of the NHI and the NHI will fail, I think is something that we need to reflect mm. on and step back on. However, right, I do think that what we're talking about is phase implementation of the NHI, right? So in the first instance, we're saying, okay, so we're giving us six years to sort of fix the kinks, mm. right? And under Section 57 of the bill, there's a thing called transitional arrangements, mm. Right. And in those transitional arrangements, they identify a couple of activities that will take place over the next seven years that allow us a a window into how this fund will operate. Mm. Right. So they talk about prioritizing uh, rural communities in particular. Sure. Right. They also talk about um, purchasing services for people living with disabilities, Mm. you know, to optimizing services for young women. Sure. And so forth and etc. And there's a couple of others that's included in there. I think in there lies an opportunity for us to say, okay, fine. let's let's actually design this as a pilot now, Mm, right? mm. And let's start looking at what are the kind of things that we want to learn and have a process of continual learning. And I think, yeah, the universities have an important role to play. You know, and and, and I think one of the things that I, I'm not a researcher, so I'm Mm. a user of research. I read. Sure, sure available. You research. apply it. <laughs> I don't know if I apply it, but I read it, and sure. you know some of the things are good, and some of the things like I, I don't agree. Mm. But I think I read as widely as I possibly can, and I think one of the gaps that I, at least from South African schools of public health was the limited amount of space that they'd given to broader health system reform or mm. transition, mm. right? And I think they haven't really helped us a lot to try and understand how our health system functions. Like one of the things, for instance, like. The, the NHI is built around a strong referral system. Yeah, We have no referral system at the moment. You know, we have bypassing of care. You know, a, a, a lot of that's happening now by, by default. Mm. But we don't really have a deliberate culture of referral. Right? We'll just come to the clinic and we'll say, no, it's not here. Go to the hospital.
0: But there's nothing that says. There's, there's, there's no a real physical a record or. or yeah, we, of we, that we can't analyze
1: how many referrals came out of this clinic. Mm. We can't even really understand what the, the the case mix is within a particular facility. Mm. We don't really mm. know what's happening in our hospitals, how many of the things that they're doing, they should
0: be doing, how many of the things so that I mean, they're that's doing. It's like a data management process, right? It, I mean, uh, the information that is coming into the system be it a paper-based or even, you know, the technologically driven kind of system, Yeah. Uh, it, it shows us that we really don't have a way not only to learn from some of the failures of the pilots, and I mm-hmm. use that in inverted mm-hmm. commas, but even from some of the data that we already have in the system. Yeah, well, exactly. Mm. It's central to,
1: to these health reforms yeah. and what we need to do over the, 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 the next six years or so is like three things. It's just like one health management information system. Mm. I think I can't emphasize how important that will be. In, in those areas that we prioritize for NHI funding to start building those kind yeah, of capabilities. Yeah. And it's beyond patient registration. Mm. It's really mm. just looking and trying to understand what are we doing in our facilities. The second thing is to look at our human resources for health. Right, I've, I've gone on and on about all the vacancies. Right, so one of the things that they speak about in the fund that's a requirement for you to be accredited is having the right staffing mix mm. to be able to serve the population that you contracted to serve, sure. public or private. We don't have any s- real staffing norms at the moment. We've got some workplace indicator survey studies, Wizen that, that was gazetted in October 2015. But we don't re- But they're all aspirational. Right? One of the things that we do in South Africa is we plan for the, for the ideal, you know? And so we start and creating- we don't plan it. for what we have, yeah. We don't plan for what we have or what we, can, what we need to do with what mm-hmm. we have. You know, so we, at the end of the day, all those plans and those norms become aspirational as opposed to relative. Right. And I think maybe that's one of the areas that we need to start figuring out what is the right staffing mixes and what is and where should they be. You know, and I think there's a lot of opportunities for us to really take the next six years and, and get around this idea of a unified health system and then start working out the kinks. These guys told us now that they're not gonna raise any new taxes in the near term. Mm. Right? What they're looking at doing is consolidating current expenditure. Yeah. Right. And I think that's an opportunity for academics, for activists and for the public at large to start looking at what is the thing that we want. Mm. You know, and I think that's one of the things that we at the Rural Health Adv- Advocacy Project are beginning to think about. Like, we have a little project in Neandeni in outside um, Umtata, where we're beginning to talk to communities directly. And we're saying, like, listen, we've got a little health health um, advocate curriculum that we've developed mm. that looks at things like health literacy, mm. which is more really informed yeah. about what are your service entitlements. Sure, sure. Right. And honestly,
0: I mean, just on that, uh, w- where would auxiliary health workers and even, you know, this question of professionalization of community health workers mm. alongside programs like the Community Works program. Mm. Does that fit, I guess, into this kind of mix well, of the NHI? Well,
1: I think the way that we think about community health workers at the moment is, 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 is ki- killing the, 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 the value that that cater can have. Mm. Right? The, the, the scope of practice is too medicalized. Yeah. And when it's medicalized, it's, it's very limited. Right, I think we need a, a proper conversation. Firstly, on a standardized curriculum for the training sure. of community health workers, that looks at all the different disease things that we, and also the enablers mm. that we can work around. You the know, environmental like high, factors. Yeah, environmental yeah. factors. We can talk about how can community health workers support someone that just had a hip replacement. Mm. Right. In in rural communities, we have a very weird population pyramid. We have lots of old people and lots of young people. Exactly. Right. So the needs are are, are, are complex. Mm. Right. So what happens to when 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 when, when my granny? gets a hip replacement, Mm. has to go home and there's nobody to care for, the kids are too young. Community health workers can provide that support Mm. to help that back referral process. That's missing at the moment. Okay. So I think community health workers have a vital role to play, Mm. right? But I think in their current form, we need to start having a conversation around how do we make sure that we're not just spending money on saying we have community health Mm. workers but actively invest Professionalizing that cater. Okay. And also then look at career progression. Sure, sure. I mean, nobody wants to be a community health worker for the, the rest of their lives. Yeah, 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 yeah,
0: right? Yeah. You know, and I think okay. that, that, that that's the kind of conversations sure. that we can have okay. during a
1: reform process. Awesome.
0: Comrade Russell, we'll have to leave it there. Unfortunately, my brother, we have run out of time. <laughs> it's always a pleasure to catch up with you, man. And <laughs> no. uh, we, we must make some time here to have this uh, proper conversation here. No, let's do that. Let's and change the narrative away from collapse and, and one
1: about building.
0: Awesome, awesome. Okay. Russell Rensberg is from the Rural Health Advocacy Project joining us this evening here on Metro FM Talk. It's been a pleasure to be with you. I leave you with uh, the man with the music.